Uh, morning again. At this time, uh, we invite the kids and youth to head to their classes. Um, kids will head to the front, and youth, I believe, will head to the back. Um, this morning, we are continuing our um, Good News for the Lost, our sermon series through the book of Luke. Um, and as you've kind of picked up on the theme this morning, we're going to talk about redemption and, and being redeemed. And so the message this morning is essentially good news for the redeemed. Um, as I thought about redeemed, I thought about two songs. Um, the first one is uh, a pretty familiar camp chorus, I've Been Redeemed. I'd sing for you, but I want you to still be in the spirit of worship. Um, but it's, that, it's a famous song. It's like, it's like call and response. I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of the lamb. I've been redeemed, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, filled with the Holy Ghost I am. And, and when I thought about that song, I thought about how when, when I was introduced to redemption, it was a personal thing, right? It was God has redeemed me. Christ has died for me. And so the entirety of my focus, the entirety of that song is about what God has done for me. Now, it being camp, we had some uh, a twist, right? It was always a camp counselor who had a car that was older than we were. You know, sometimes twice as old as we were. So sometimes you'd have a, a verse to say, you know, no, you can't get to heaven, you know, in Hank's car, because Hank's car don't go that far, right? So it's like, that, that's what I remember about this idea of redeemed. But I was also thinking about how, because we grew up in the church, that's the only place we think of redeemed. So I was just curious what the, the dictionary definition was, right? I was just like, I'm just curious how they understand this word. And I was shocked to see that a lot of the biblical understanding of redeemed has lingered in even the regular translation. So if you go to the regular definition, so if you go to just look up redeem, you might see word like repurchase. So the idea of redemption here is to buy or, or win something back. And I can relate to this. You know, in my house, I have a spot, right? In my living room, I have a favorite spot. I have a favorite blanket. But I also have these things called children, right? And they, they feel the need to interrupt and intrude on my favorite spot and my favorite blanket. So whenever they leave, I feel like I've won it back. I've redeemed my spot, right? Uh, but another definition you might find there is ransom. And the idea here isn't just the, the price that you pay for ransom. I think all of us watched too many, like, movies growing up, right? But the idea here is more like uh, uh, not just the noun as in what you pay, the thing you pay, but the verb is the act of ransom. So the idea of redeem is to rescue from blame, from debt, from consequences, but is that the, the work is the action that you're actually doing. And I think that's important to hold on to because a lot of times when we think about being redeemed, well, Christ redeemed us. He paid the price. And you'll see in scripture, it's not just he paid the price with his blood. You'll see that he is the ransom. He is the act, right? He is the one who physically does it. So I, I think that's important for us to hold on to because sometimes when we think about God saving us, we think it's automatic. Well, he loves us. He saved us. No, it's an act. It's something that Christ did. Another word you might find there is reform, right? And, and the idea here is to change it for the better, so redeemed isn't just something that happens and then all the things, but it's actually, it's a process of repairing, of restoring, of renewing, of reconciling. So to be redeemed then isn't, again, just this gift that you have, but to be redeemed is to, to walk in this light of, of reformation, in this light of repair, restore, renew, reconcile. The last definition you might see under the word redeemed is this idea of reclaim. Now, in our culture, when we hear reclaim, we don't really use that word a lot, so we think of reclamation projects. And most of us, when we think about reclamation projects, we think about things that are maybe not in the best condition or things that aren't used as well anymore, and we should get to it, but we don't get to it. 
But for those of you who are out here who are artisans, right? For those of you who've ever seen something that was dead, that like through your hands, right, you brought it to life, right? For those of you who have a project that you've worked on, there's a different love that you have for that thing, right? Whether it's like an old car that you worked on for 20 years, right, just so it could drive a block, Right? Or, or whether it's like an old deck, right, that you polish, you stain. You know, it's just bringing something to life is beautiful because you're making it worthwhile. And this is just the dictionary definition. And I love that because all of these play into the biblical understanding of redeem. For example, the idea that to be, uh, to buy back or to win back, to repurchase, you see that in Peter. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But... With the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You also see within scripture this idea that Christ didn't just pay the ransom, but Christ is the ransom. The writer of the Hebrews says this, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You also see this idea of of, of being reformed. This idea of not only change for the better, but repair, restore, renew, reconcile. To, To the Corinthians, Paul writes this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So this idea of repair, of renew, isn't just you're your best version of yourself. It's that you stop living for yourself and you start living for Christ. And that, that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that God sent Christ to reconcile everything to God. But now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So the idea here is if we're going to call ourselves redeemed to our world, we better be what? Repairing, restoring, renewing, and reconciling. And of course, this idea of reform, right? To make something worthwhile or to bring it back to its former state or a better state. Uh, Paul, again, to the Ephesians says this. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see in the biblical definition of redeem that that the perfect Christ has paid for us with his precious blood. We see in the biblical definition of redeem that Christ is not just the payment but he is the ransom that set us free. We see in the biblical definition of of reconciliation that Christ's love compels us to not only be redeemed but to live as redeemed people who are renewing, who are reconciling, who are repairing, who is restoring our world and we do all of this. Why? Because Christ is our example. Sisters and brothers, we have been redeemed. We are redeemed by the light of the spirit. All of us in this room who's chosen to follow Jesus is because of the Spirit. It's because the Spirit convicted you. It's because the Spirit got you to the point where you realized that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's because the Spirit came alive in you and brought you to the throne of grace. We are all redeemed by the light of the Spirit. We are all redeemed by the love of God. For God so loved the world, he sent Jesus. For God so loved you, he sent the Spirit. 
for God so loves our world, he sends all of you into our world. So many of us are so scared of the world and so scared of the forces of darkness. And I'm not saying it's not scary and dark. I'm just saying and trying to get you to remember your God's a little bit bigger. Your God's a little bit stronger. Your God knows what's going on. There's nothing this world has gone through or will go through that you're experiencing that God has not already conquered, that God is not greater than. You do not have to fear. Your God is the God of all things. Amen? And that is that same God who's on our side. We're redeemed by the love of God to not fear the world, but to go into the world to live as light in that darkness. We're also redeemed by the lion who became the lamb, the all-powerful God gave up that eternal heavenly throne to come to this earth to show us how to live in love, yes, but ultimately to rescue, to ransom, to repurchase, to reform, to reclaim what was his, and that's us. But the thing is, a lot of times in church, we talk about redemption, 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 and we only talk about the end product. We talk about the fruit of redemption. And so this morning we're going to attempt, we're in central Pennsylvania, so this is what we do here, right? We're not going to put the cart before the horse. Shout out to our Anabaptist forefathers and mothers, right? We're not going to put the cart of redemption before the horse because you cannot be redeemed if you do not repent. And that's what Jesus calls his people out in Luke chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, turn now to Luke 13. I'll be reading verses 1 to 9. Um, so we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Luke 13, starting at verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or are those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were guilty than others, than all the others living in Jerusalem? <clears throat> I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, somebody get me water. I feel like I'm dying all of a sudden. <clears throat> I'm not really dying. People online, I'm alive. But Josiah, can you get me water, like a cup of water? Oh, she getting it? Thank you. I'm like, ugh, just got hooked. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Let's pray. Mostly for me. No, I'm just kidding. <coughs> Let's pray. Our final God, we thank you that as we think about redemption this morning, May we not just focus on the fruit of redemption. May we not just focus on what, what's already been done. But will we acknowledge and lift up and give you praise for what you have done. For how the Spirit is the one who leads us to redemption. How Christ is the one who makes it possible for us to be redeemed. And how the Father's love is the one who planned our all redemption. But Lord, we cannot re be redeemed if we do not repent. We cannot be the redeemed if we do not do our part of turning our eyes off of ourselves and putting it on you. So, Father God, as we go into this text this morning, may we be reminded that as the redeemed, we're called to repent. In your holy and precious name, amen.
We can get through this. So as I was thinking about repentance and redemption, this passage is a very strange one because it's, again, one of those passages that challenges your assumptions about Jesus. This is the middle of a section between Luke 12, 13, 14, where Jesus is saying stuff like, I come to cause division. Like, I will literally come to cause division between husband, wife, father, son, mother, daughter. I have come to cause division. If you don't choose me, you're not going to be with me. So Jesus, in the midst of all this passage, and he's talking about eternal um, suffering that's going to come. He's talking about Jerusalem that's going to fall about 30, 40 years after he goes to heaven. Jesus is in the midst of all of this, talking about division, division, division. And so you have this passage that's kind of interesting because Jesus also said, before this that I'm going to Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to ransom us, to rescue us, to redeem us. And so the passage, that, 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 the, the opening, I want you to hold on to that in Luke 13 because as, you know, Jesus is, is telling them I'm going to die, I'm going to die, people come to him concerned. Imagine if you heard, right, that in Harrisburg, they were going around and, and killing Liberian preachers. I would hope that one of you would feel the need to let me know that in my city, they're killing Liberian preachers, right? Essentially, that's what's happening in this story. Like, like Jesus, like, I'm going to Jerusalem. And the people are like, I mean, you sure you want to do this? Like, <laughs> last time we went to Jerusalem, we heard some pretty bad things. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. And they're like, no, no, but you, you don't understand. Like, this is what's happening to your people there. And what I love about this passage is Jesus actually, <laughs> he gets asked this, this answer, this question that I think a lot of us wrestle with, right? Why do bad things happen? Why does tragedy happen? Why is there suffering in this world? Why is there so much suffering in this world? Why do people who seem like they're just good and not doing anything to hurt anybody seem to have so much grief and suffering? And instead of answering that question, Jesus goes, I think y'all need to repent. And so when you go into this passage, you find that for Jesus, it's not about suffering. It's not about grief. It's not even about tragedy. It's about do you know where you stand before God at every given time? And so that's why I began the, the sermon reminding us that there's nothing we face now that people haven't faced before. There is no feeling that you're experiencing that maybe millions and, and hundreds of millions of people who have lived, who are living, who will live, have also experienced or are experiencing. But the idea here to Jesus is that if you want to be redeemed, repentance is foundational for you have to repent for you to be redeemed. Why? Because repentance is your pathway back to God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, they have this idea of shuv. And I've explained this many times before, right? Shuv is the idea of we're in Harrisburg. We said we're going to Pittsburgh. You fall asleep and it says welcome to Philadelphia, right? Like it's not enough for me to be like, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> but we're still in Philadelphia and we're trying to get to Pittsburgh, right? So shuv is the idea of what? Turning the car around, getting back on the turnpike or whatever road you choose to, to pay the tolls on and, and drive to Pittsburgh. So the idea of shuv isn't just, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. Because that does not get us to our destination. That does not get us to, to Pittsburgh. We're still in Philadelphia. If you fall asleep again, it says, welcome to New Jersey, right? Like, you're not going to be like, oh, he messed up. 
You know, you might actually take control of the car and get the car on the right track. But the idea of shuv, right, is physically turning back to God. I don't even know how many drinks I need, but... <laughs> now I feel like there's pressure on me to keep drinking. Um, but the idea of shuv is literally turning back to God. But I want to add a little bit something new to the shuv idea. Because it's not just, hey, we're going to Pittsburgh and we're in Philadelphia, so turn the car around. It's actually fully committing to turning the car around. Right? If, if, if I know I'm supposed to be in Pittsburgh, and you say, Hank, turn the car around, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to turn the car. Like, that is not shuv. <laughs> if I know where I'm supposed to be, and I know where I'm supposed to get, and I have the instructions of how to get there, and I'm complaining and moping and crying the whole time about it, that's not the attitude of shuv. Not only are you upset at me for going the wrong way, you're now upset at me for not listening to the right way to go. Now imagine that same scenario with us and God. Imagine that same scenario with us and God when we fall short. And God says, I've redeemed you, I've rescued you, I've called you back to me. And instead of us turning the car around, we turn the car around angrily. We turn the car around complaining. We turn the car around saying, like, you know what, I just, like, I, I got to do this, right? That is not the attitude of shuv. Shuv is, yes, turning the car back around, turning back to God, but it's doing the work and doing it with the heart that pleases God. You know, another thing about repentance, not only is it shuv, Repentance is not cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is one of my favorite people, um, he should have either stayed in the black church or became an Anabaptist. Whenever he went astray, then he wanted to kill Hitler. Now, we don't like that part of the story. But, but Bonhoeffer was brilliant. And I personally think if it wasn't for the black church, I don't know if Bonhoeffer that people love would have been Bonhoeffer. Because he was privileged, he was wealthy, he was educated. But he had to come to America at Union Seminary in New York City, and he saw black Christians who were struggling in this United States. And he said, wait, how is it possible that you believe in the same God and they keep mistreating you? And that's what motivated him to go back to Germany and fight for Jews. Why? Because the Christians in Germany were aligned with Hitler. And so the, this black church experience changed them. So when Bonhoeffer says redemption can't be about cheap grace, I think all of us need to sit up a little bit because we like cheap grace. We like to just say, God, forgive me, and I'm forgiven. But Bonhoeffer seems to think it's a little bit deeper than that. In fact, he says this, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using it and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? But cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's teaching baptism without teaching Christ. It's communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, grace that's not living and not incarnate. The grace that God calls us to have is not the one that just says, hey, I mess up, forgive me, everything's okay. It's a shuv. It's turning. It's changing. It's actually getting to a point where you're turning the car around. You're following the word of God. You're keeping your eyes focused on God. You're going in the right direction. It's not enough to just say, Lord, I'm sorry. And I get it. It's Lent. 
A lot of us are sorry. But the deeper thing that God is calling us to is not a grace that's cheap. And you know why Bonhoeffer says the grace of God isn't cheap? And that challenges some of us because we like to think, well, God loves us. His grace is cheap. No, it's not cheap. You know why it's not cheap? Jesus died for you to have that grace. It might be free to you and feel cheap to you, but it costs God his life. It is not a cheap grace. And so Jesus, in the midst of all this, people who are worried about him going to Jerusalem, people who are worried about tragedies, who are worried about how dark the world is, Jesus says what? Forget all that. Repent, for you will perish. And that's something I think we need to sit with. This is the most Lenten sermon I've ever preached, right? Because we're going to be in it today, right? The first thing that Jesus seems to be saying to me is, we're all only getting closer to our last breath. Just do something for me. Take a deep breath right now. Good. You're now one breath closer to death. And I think that's important for us to remember. That's important for us to remember not only could today be your last, that breath could have been your last. And to breathe right now is a grace from God. And to breathe today is a grace from God. You know, the old folks in the church I grew up with say, I'm alive and I'm in my right mind. And I never used to get that, right? I used to be like, these old church ladies, what are they talking about? But now I understand the joy of being in my right mind. But the thing is, if we are all one step closer to our last breath, the question becomes, how are we living? What are we doing with those breaths? And if we're all children of the redeemed who are closer to our last breath, can we be redeemed if we're not living like the redeemed? Can we accept redemption if we do not repent? And then the second thing that Jesus seems to be saying here, and I think I didn't hear this enough in church growing up. We, as people of God, are not immune to the tragedies of this world. We will experience tragedies in this life. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean bad things isn't going to happen. Just like believing in Jesus doesn't mean you're guaranteed bad things will happen. Because there's people on that side too. People are like, because I believe in Jesus, that's why I'm suffering so much. It's like, you might be suffering because you're insufferable. <laughs> right? Like, you might, there's a difference between consequences, right, for things that you do, and suffering that just comes from being in this world. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you will not suffer, does not mean you will not see hard things, does not mean you will not suffer in this world. But the thing is, Jesus again says we will experience tragedies in this life. Expect it. All we're promised is that God is on our side, that God will be with us in that darkness, and that God is always going to promise us light. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be a, a, a world without struggle. It's going to come. In fact, in this story, there's two things that, 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 that kind of gets glossed over in this first five verses. Uh, first one is that Pilate, we often only talk about Pilate during Easter time, right? And it's like he made this deal with the, the, the Jewish, uh, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, and he killed Jesus or he allowed it to be killed. I want you to understand. That deal they made with Pilate was literally enemy of my enemy is my friend. They did not like Pilate. In fact, I don't use this word lightly, and I know it's 2024, and it might be sensitive. Pilate was a terrorist. 
Pilate was a terrorist. He was the leader of a government that was occupying their land and killing their people. In fact, the first five verses, do you know what happened here? Pilate went, he heard Galileans were worshiping in the temple. His job was to keep the peace. So the, 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 the church history story is that Pilate, during worship in the temple, sent an army garrison into the temple to kill the people worshiping. Like when we think about this deal that they made with Pilate, realize that he was not a good person. I've heard so many sermons where it's like, well, Pilate's not as guilty because he washed his hands. No, he's guilty just like we're all guilty. Pilate literally killed them. And so that's what they're saying. They're like, listen, um, I know you want to go to Jerusalem and all, but Pilate, the temple ain't even safe. Pilate is killing us in the temple and then mixing our blood with the sacrifice. This is the dude they made a deal with. Think about the, the ancient Jewish understanding of sacrifice. Think about how crucial that temple was to them. And he was desecrating the temple. In fact, he tried to bring, I know we don't do this in our churches, we're Anabaptists, so we're immune from this one. But you might go to churches sometimes, and you might see stuff like symbols of military power in a church. The ancient Jews didn't like that, just like our, our, our Anabaptist people didn't like that. That's why when we put flags up, we said we want every country represented that's represented here, because we're not going to elevate one nation above the other. Like, every flag here is intentional. That's where our people are from. That's what we represent. That's who we are. We will never put one flag on the thing. The ancient Jews didn't do that to Pilate. Then that's why he terrorized them. They did not buck to his power. They did not buck to the empire. But yet this same Pilate guy, another thing he did, he took the temple money, literally stole the people's sacrifice money to build an aqueduct. Because he said, you know what, I think y'all need better water. But first the water got to go to me. And then like whatever that thought. And then when the people rebelled, he slaughtered them again. This is the pilot that they're talking about. This is the pilot they made a deal with. Enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Jesus is saying, I know you're worried about pilot literally slaughtering you in the temple. But what I care about is where do you stand with God? Have you repented? Are you redeemed? And Jesus says, even if it's not Pilate doing something, sometimes in this world, accidents happen. Tragedies happen. The, the story about Siloam was that it was a, this, this, this neighborhood or, or maybe a corner or place in, in Jerusalem where there literally was a wall and it was a building project. And people fell and the tower fell down on them. And Jesus is quoting something. It's almost like Jesus is reading the news that morning and saying, like, you're worried about this, but 18 people just died. But what I care about is what? Where do you stand before God? And that's why this passage is jarring, because Jesus doesn't stop to answer, why is there suffering in the world? He says, no, no, there will be suffering. Where do you stand before God? Are you redeemed? Accidents might happen. But here's the thing I want to say, though, on these two things. Because I think sometimes we don't say this enough in the churches. Yes, tragedies will happen. But tragedy and suffering and pain does not correlate directly with sin. You did not suffer a tragedy or a heartbreak because you're sinful. You did not struggle with suffering in this life because your parents sin or because you sin or because you're not a good enough Christian. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the world we live in is fallen, it's broken, it's dark, and Christ is still redeeming it. But it's not redeemed yet fully.
And so this suffering that we happen, because tragedies happen in your life, it's not because of sin that you did. It's because of sin that's in the world and the world being dark. The second thing, though, and I think this is for also some of us, because some of us who, who were taught a theology was like, the reason you're so blessed is because you're so good. We might clean that up a little bit, though. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that out, outright. It was like, well, you know, God's just blessed me because I've been so faithful. There are plenty of faithful Christians who aren't as blessed as you. There's plenty of Christians who are more faithful than all of us who will never be as blessed as we are. Your blessing is a gift from God, is a grace from God. Yes, praise him for that. But your blessing is not a sign that you're a better Christian. No tragedy does not correlate with sin, but it also does not correlate with your goodness. It correlates, if anything, with the goodness of God. If you make your blessings about how good you are, it's about you. But if you make every single blessing, even a breath in your lungs, about how God is good and how God is merciful and loving and kind, that's how to walk in light. Now, I talked about two songs. I feel like i got to finish drinking all these drinks now. I talked about two songs. The first one was I've Been Redeemed. The second song that taught me about redemption was actually by Bob Marley and his redemption song. Now, this song is actually interesting because it's, it's literally Bob's last song. It's the final track on, on the final album that, that he released with the Whalers before he died called Uprising. Now, most of us who grew up in Bob Marley, listen to Bob Marley, we got the Legend album, which is like greatest hits. Like, that's not an actual Bob Marley album. That's like 20 years later, like, we can make money off this. Put these all together, right? That's the greatest hits album. But his actually studio album, the last one, is Uprising. And, and what's interesting about this song is it's always struck me that it's very different than any other Bob Marley I heard. It was more acoustic than reggae. It was more autobiographical than, than just like, you know, uh, like anything like Bob relaxed music, right? But it's also historical. Because you see, in this redemption song, Bob is able to sing about African enslavement or enslavement of African people, not just in Jamaica and the Caribbean, but here in North America and South America and all over the world. It's a song that's also about biblical redemption. In fact, when he talks about being down in the pits, that's an intentional hearkening to Joseph. Remember where Joseph was? He was down in the pits. And that tracks. Because in this here United States, it was black people who were enslaved, who had to remind Christians in general, not just in America, but in the world, that God is not on the side of Pharaoh. That God is on the side of the oppressed. That God is on the side of the enslaved. Because back then they would tell them that, like, you're, you're enslaved because that's what God chose you to do. That, that, that's your role that God's given you. And it was those oppressed, enslaved people that said, you know, this Bible that you've taught us about, we think God is actually on our side. We think God is actually with us in the struggle. And so he talks about biblical redemption, but he also talks about God as redeemer. He says that the hand of the Almighty has made me strong. But the thing I missed for years, probably until college, was when he says, won't you help to sing these redemption songs? was that it was an invitation 
You have to understand that Bob is dealing with his own mortality when he finishes this song. He's been diagnosed with cancer. He knows the end is near. Because in his version of Rastafari, which we can argue whether or not that's Christianity, but in his version of religion, he couldn't take the help. He couldn't take medicine. So he knew his end was near. So he's facing mortality. And in that mortality, he says, yes, God is with us in the struggle. Yes, God is with us when we're oppressed. Yes, God is with us in the darkness. But he gives this invitation that if we're going to be the redeemed, we can't be redeemed alone. And that's what Redemption Song is about, an invitation to you to sing the song together. Why is that important? That's important because in the second half of this passage, Jesus tells this parable. And in this parable, Jesus reminds us that he also in this parable, I think, invites all of us to repent and sing redemption songs. Now, the parable is the parable of the fig tree. People will argue what the fig tree represents. The best answer I got is the people of God. And then depending on who you want to listen to, the people of God is either Israel, that Jesus is speaking to the people then and there and the people who were promised the first covenant. There's some people who says, no, it's actually not just them, but it's all of us in the church, right? Like Jesus calls all of us to bear fruit. And I think that's closer to it. But then there's people who say, actually, it's not just the church that are made by God. God made every single person. So God expects fruit and belief from every single person, right? So it's actually a parable for all of humanity. Now, I don't really particularly care which one you think it is, right? I just want you to know that this parable is for the people of God. Is it Israel? Yes. Is it the church? Yes. Is it all of humanity? Yes. And what is Jesus saying in this parable? One, a tree is to bear fruit. And a garden is to be tended to. The trees to bear fruit. It doesn't seem that mind-blowing, right? Until you put it into your life and say, okay, if I've been planted by the Lord, am I bearing fruit? Because that's what he's saying in this parable. Like you plant, and it's, it's weird because in Palestine, they would literally, back in Jesus' day, they would grow these fig things in the vineyards. Right? They would build run them together. And, and then part of the thinking of that is just like, I don't, if I plant two, you talk to any farmer, right? It, for those of you in the business, you diversify your portfolio. That's what the farmers would do, right? Because you might not get the grapes, but you might get the figs. So they would do both of them. And what Jesus is saying here is that all of you who belong to me have been planted. Are you bearing fruit? And then I love this, though, because the second thing about this parable is he talks about how the, 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 there's a gardener who steps up, right, and says, listen, give me another year. Give me another year. I'll do, like, the manure around it. I'll take care of it. Give it another year, and let's just try it again. And I love that because all of us are not just trees that have been planted, but all of us are gardens with Jesus as the gardener, that he's the one who's tending to us. So it's not just that the Lord is my shepherd, but this morning the Lord is my gardener. He's the one who gives you sunshine when you need it, water when you need it, nutrients when you need it. He's the one who will, who will take care of you and move all the brush from around you so that you can grow and bloom. But I think this, this, this parable, though, is also reminding us if it's all about repentance, it's two things. God's grace is infinite, yes. There's nothing you can do that God cannot forgive. There's no way you can fall short that God's going to be like, you know what, that's outside of my range. You know, like, I, I forgive, like, most people, but not you, right? God's grace is always infinite. But the warning that Jesus leaves for us here is that God's patience is also great, but it only lasts for a while. 
it only lasts for a while. So God's going to give you time to repent. Remember that deep breath you took? You don't know when your last breath is. God's going to give you time to repent, but you don't know how long you have. And so repentance, to me, is this invitation to join the chorus, to sing the redemption song. Why? Because repentance is the path back to God, but repentance is also home with the family of God. Because if we're living like the redeemed, we're not just celebrating that God has redeemed me, we're celebrating that God has redeemed us. If we're living like the redeemed, we're singing. The, the works of reconciliation, the reclamation, the repair, the restoring that we're doing together is this beautiful chorus that will sing to the world. So what is the good news for we, the redeemed? I think the simple message of this thing, if you want to take anything out of this, is simply this, right? Repent today, tomorrow's not guaranteed. That's it. I don't know what you need to repent of. I don't know what you've been struggling with. I don't know what sin is hidden in there. I don't know what relationship you need to repair. I don't know what the darkness is, but I know that today is the day of salvation. And I know that today is the day God's calling you to repent. And I know that tomorrow's not guaranteed. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. And so all of us, today is the day of salvation. Repent today. And when I say repent, I'm not just saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Start there. But don't just say, I'm sorry. Turn the car around. Turn your face and put it on Jesus. Start marching to the beat of his drum. Start listening to what he says. Start following him. That's what it means to repent. Not just, I'm sorry, but Lord, help me stop. Help me turn. Help me keep going. Repent today, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Repent today. Why? Because mercy is available now. Sarah Jakes Roberts has this line that I love. She says this, repentance is not a burden. It is a gift. It's an invitation to experience the fullness of God's grace and restoration. If you don't repent, you can never fully experience God's grace. If you've never been forgiven, you can't know forgiveness. That's as simply as I can say it, right? If you've never been loved, you don't know what love is. If you've never been forgiven, you cannot know the power of forgiveness. God calls us to repent, not to get us in trouble, but so that we can stop living in destructive ways. So that we can stop living in ways that tear ourselves up and tear down the people around us. God calls us to repent because mercy is available. Mercy is this idea of not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is this idea of God's love that's going to chase us down until we're captured. Repent. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Repent. Mercy is available now. But the two things I want to end with with repentance is I pray, my sisters and brothers, that you choose a repentance that's costly and a grace that ain't cheap. So yes, ask and receive God's forgiveness today. Yes, turn from sin and turn to God. Yes, but part of your shoe, part of your repentance has to be taking a step back, acknowledging the sin, acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the hurt that you've caused. That's repentance too. Because if I harmed you and I asked God to forgive me, God's going to forgive me, but you might not be willing to forgive me if I don't repent. If I don't come to you humbly 
if I don't get off my high horse and repair our relationship and do what's necessary to repair our relationship. And especially if we're sisters and brothers together in Christ. If you're a brother in Christ, you're a sister in Christ, you're a part of me as much as I'm a part of you. And we're both part of each other as much as we're part of Jesus. That's why we ought to repent and reconcile to one another. The whole body hurts the more we let relationships die. The more we fail to repair, the more we fail to reconcile. So yes, ask God for forgiveness, turn from sin, turn to God, but you have to acknowledge the sin, the pain, and hurt that you've caused. And then you got to do the work. God forgives you, that's easy. But if any of you have ever had to rebuild a relationship, you know that's hard. God forgives you, his grace is infinite. But if any of you have to actually go and say, I am sorry for what I've done, and look a person in the eye, and you know that they might want to forgive you, but they can't forgive you. That's a little bit harder, ain't it? But you have to do the work. That's what repentance is. It's doing that work too. So yet, yeah, say, God, forgive me. But it's not enough to say, God, forgive me. If God wants to forgive you, but you and your brother are not good. You and your sister are not good. You and your uncle aren't talking no more. You and your best friend can't see eye to eye. How can we say we love the God who we cannot see if we do not love our sisters and brothers who we do see? That's the work of repentance. And lastly, I'm going to close with this. Repent, for you have been redeemed. We repent because Christ has won all of us back. We repent because Christ is the rescue. I don't care what your situation is, Christ is the rescue. We repent because Christ calls us to be reformed and not just reformed, like reformed, right? Like, like, like actually new creation, actual change for the better. And what that change looks like is committing our lives to reconciliation. And that's what Paul tells the Corinthians, Christ's love compels us. That's why we ought to be reconciled to one another, not because we don't feel pain, not because we're not hurt, not because we're not facing darkness and this is hard. We repent because Christ's love compels us. And if we truly understand the forgiveness of God, we also will be willing to forgive. Because remember, Jesus himself said, if you do not forgive, how can you expect my Father in heaven to forgive you? Repent. Repent, repent. I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to close our service. Um, singing a pretty familiar song, Lord, I Need You. Um, but as we sing this song, I want to also invite you to stand if you can. Any of the pastors in the room will be up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. But I'd like you to kind of, if you, if you, if you want to stand and sing or you sit, that's good. But if God is working and moving in your spirit, I want to give you the, the peace and the space to sit in there too. Because maybe he, as we sing this song, you're saying, Lord, I need you. Maybe there is forgiveness that you have to ask God for. Like actual forgiveness, not just God, I messed up. But truly in the spirit of Lent, truly in the spirit of Christ, truly in the spirit of sacrifice, saying, God, I have fallen short. Forgive me. And I'm leaning on you and trusting your love and mercy to carry me through. Or maybe you've asked for forgiveness. And right now you need to say, Holy Spirit, I need your help. 
I need your help because this sin has, has not just easily ensnared me. It's all I can. I feel shackled, and I want to break these chains of oppression, break these chains of sin, break these chains of darkness. And so maybe your prayer as you sing the song, as you sit there, is God, help me turn from sin and turn to you. Or, or maybe it's even more personal than that. Maybe it's redoing the work in your relationships and the people in your lives and saying, man, I may be a different person now, but my goodness, I caused some carnage in relationships. And maybe it's good that God's redeemed me, but I got to go back and do the work of trying to bring peace here. Of these relationships that I've broken, this hurt that I've done, I got to acknowledge it, but then I got to do the work to repair those relationships. I don't know where you are this morning, but I know every single one of us are called to repent. And that's why we need the Lord. And that's why the Lord is for us and with us. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
psalmist sang, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands from east and the west, from the north and the south. Let them give thanks for the Lord for his unfailing love and for his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds of mankind. Let them sacrifice, thank offerings, and tell of his works with songs of joy. I pray that all of us are living lives at this redemption song. I pray that all of us are living lives that we're willing to say today is a day of repentance. And maybe today is the day that we just say, God, I've fallen short. Forgive me. Or, or maybe today is the day where we say, God, I actually need you to keep my eyes focused on you. Maybe today is the day where we say, God, I'm committed to repairing this friendship, this relationship, this brokenness, this, this pain that I have caused, Lord. I'm going to work to actually fix this as best as I can. Or maybe the simple redemption is just saying, God, you're the example, and your love compels me to live like the redeemed. I don't know where we are this morning, but I know all of us need to repent. Because according to our Jesus, that is the first step to living as the redeemed. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that you are indeed our redeemer. You're the one who redeemed us out of slavery of sin. You're the one who redeems us out of the darkness and the pits of this world. You're the one who redeems us even when we fall short at our doing. But God, we thank you that your goodness never runs out. Your compassion never runs out. Your love never runs out. Your grace never runs out. So help us to know, Lord, that in this moment we can come to you. For you are indeed our shepherd. You are indeed our gardener. You are our Lord and Savior. You're the mediator who stands on our behalf. So, Lord, we give you thanks. May our lives sing the songs of redemption, of everything that you've done for us. May our lives tell the story of your goodness, your mercy, your compassion, and your love. God, we pray now that as we leave, as we go back into this world, that we may be reminded that repentance is the first step of the redeemed. Repentance is a gift that invites you in. Repentance is a chance for us to acknowledge where we've gone wrong. But Lord, now we pray that all of us may keep our eyes fixed on you. Holy Spirit, lead us by your light. Lord Jesus, the lion who became the lamb, continue to compel us with your love. And Father God, help us to love our sisters and brothers who we do see. Help us to love them the way you have loved us. Help us to live as the redeemed. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.